0: Well, if you don't already, you will need your Bible this morning, much like last week. We're going to turn the pages of it. Um, I very much appreciate the screen. I enjoy it. I appreciate your flexibility in my in my preaching style. Sometimes I prefer to use PowerPoint presentation. Sometimes I prefer an outline similar to what we're doing this morning, and sometimes I just like to get up and talk about the Bible, and we just open to the passage and we can go from there. And I suppose, as long as we fulfill the uh, the commandment and the role of the preacher to give voice to God's word, then we have satisfied that which we should do. Um, you may want to, well, let's not do that first. Let's go to 2 Peter 3. We are um, continuing on with our series of. Hard lessons or hard sayings, difficult passages maybe within the Bible and why they're difficult to us. I'm not going to preach 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, but I want to read them because I want to plant this thought in your mind. I'm going to build on it in a minute. As also, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And we have, I think, adequately studied um, Peter here over the last several weeks. I think that passage is familiar to each and every one of you, so I'm not going to preach it this morning. We'll uh, we'll draw that wisdom that we see right there, but we're going to build upon it here in a moment. The very first uh, sermon I ever was allowed to preach as a young Christian came from 2 Peter chapter 3. I will tell you there's one thing that's consistent in my preaching through all these years. I prepare way too much because I think that was a Wednesday night and they gave me about 15 to 20 minutes and I took about 45. But uh, there wasn't a brother or sister that said, man, you're going to have to learn to cut your sermon short. Um... There's a lot of good stuff in 2 Peter 3, but we're not not going to spend excess time on that this morning. What I do want to talk about, if you've looked ahead and um, looked at the sheet that you have in front of me, is the account of Uzzah, David, and Israel. And what occurred there, why it had occurred, and why it's important to you and I. When I think about Second Peter chapter 3, and I think about what the writer put there, that there are some of these things in Paul's epistles which are, are hard to understand, he gives a reason why they're hard to understand, two reasons, because they are either unlearned or they are unstable, and so they rest, or they, they twist, and they have difficulty with the scriptures, and his admonition to them in the very next verse is, don't fall into that. So, seeing that you know that, be sure of the things you know and why you know them so that you don't err. In 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel, we see where Uzzah and David and the Israelites failed to heed God's command, and it cost Uzzah his life. It costs thousands of people their lives. We often focus on other, but Lord willing, if I don't forget, um, we will touch upon um, the others as well. Here. So let's go to 1 Chronicles 13. I appreciate Sean reading the two passages I gave him. I'm going to give, going to give a little additional context. 1 Chronicles um, chapter 13. only 14 verses, so I'm going to read it for you. And uh, David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in the land of Israel, and with them also of the priests and Levites, which are in the cities and the suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor to Egypt. I'm sorry, from Shihor of Egypt even unto the entering of Timoth, to bring the ark of God from Arim. And David went up all and all of Israel to Bala, that is to Kirjath Jerem, which belonged to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on him. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David said, and sorry, and David and all Israel played before God with all their might. And with singing, and with harps, and with psalters, and with timbrels, and with cymbals, cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came unto the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, because he put his hand to the ark. And there he died before God. And David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah wherefore that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day and David was afraid of God that day saying how shall I bring the ark of God home to me so David brought not the ark home to himself to the city of David but carried it aside into the house of Ob- Obadedom, the Gittites and the ark of God remained with the house of Ob- Obadedom. Obededum de- oh in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obededim and all that he had. I'm getting tongue-tied already at this point. So as you read the account in the parallel in 2 Samuel 6, you likely have a series of questions, and if you're a note-taker like me, you might want to jot those down. There are four that I propose to you we're going to look at this one, and we're going to answer most. first question that might come to mind for you is, why does Uzzah have to die? And that's a legitimate question. We will answer that with biblical uh, authority this morning. You might also wonder, well, what was it that Uzzah did that was so egregious? Why did Uzzah do it? And why is it important to me? I propose that you can be able to answer three of those four. As one, we can we can see assuredly in Scripture why it was that Uzzah had to die. We will see, assuredly, what it was that Uzzah did that was egregious, and David and Israel. And we will see why it's important to me. What I can't tell you is why Uzzah put his hand to the the ark. Now, we're going to look at some potential reasons, but I can't conclusively put you in the mind of Uzzah and what he was thinking when he reached up. There are some things I suppose, and maybe we'll share those, but those are just things that we all suppose. What we know is, Uzzah reached forth, and when he reached forth and forth and touched the ark, he was disobedient to God. And with that disobedient uh, disobedience, it was righteous that God fulfilled that which He said. So, the first uh, two blanks that are there on your paper, if you're thinking about that question, why did Uzzah have to die? The simple reason is he touched the ark. The more complex or the more complete reason is he disobeyed God. Once you go back to Exodus 25, we're going to flip a lot this morning, so I will warn you. We'll turn the pages quite a bit. Exodus 25, and I want to pick up at verse 10, verses 10 through 15. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. 2 cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within, and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the side of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. Oh, I'll go to Numbers chapter 4. Numbers chapter 4. And by the way, scratch out 5 through 6. I just noticed that. I have no idea why I did that. It's verse 15. Numbers 4, verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, and the camp is set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath and the tabernacle and the congregation. And then flip to your right to Numbers chapter 7 and verse 9. But unto the sons of Kohath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belonging unto them was that they should bear upon their shoulders. How did God command the ark to be moved? It's very plain in those three verses. God was very specific. The ark was to be carried. It was to be borne upon the shoulders of the sons of Kohath using the staves or the poles that were through the rings. He was very specific that the ark was to be carried. Go. Um, we'll stay in, in Numbers chapter 7, since that's where you're at, in verse 9. And notice again, but unto the sons of Kohath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belonged to them, was that they should bear it upon their shoulders. Now flip back to the left in Numbers chapter 4. Um, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Take the sum of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi, after their families and the house of their fathers. I'm sorry, carry on. From 30 years old and upward, even till 50 years old, all that entered into the host to do the work of the tabernacle of the congregation. This shall be the service of the sons of Kohath and the tabernacle of the congregation about the most holy things. Now skip down to verse 15. Again, and when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering, by the way, the reason I'm skipping is 5 through 14 are the things that um, the sons of Aaron and the others would have done, but this is the work of the sons of Kohath in 15. And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary, and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is set to move forward, when they're ready to move, let the sons of Kohath come to bear it. God was very specific about how the ark was to be moved. It was to be carried using the staves or the poles that were through the rings. He was very specific about who it was who was to move it. It was the sons of Kohath. If you notice in verse 15 as well, God is very clear about how it's to be moved, who's to carry it. But what's going to happen if they violate his command but they shall not touch any holy thing that is the ark and the other holy things that are within the the tabernacle they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die so our question there short answer is what is the penalty if one of the sons of Kohath touched the ark they would die Is it reasonable to suppose that if the sons of Kohath touched the ark, what would happen to anybody else who touched the ark? They too would die. If the sons of Kohath couldn't touch it, and they were the ones who were assigned to move it, surely nobody else had authority to touch it either. All right, and just to um, just to add some additional thought and things to our mind to, to build our understanding of what uh, was egregious about this entire situation, in Numbers chapter 7, in the first nine verses, we see where the princes of Israel um, gave of, of their abundance. They gave carts and they gave oxen. And the purpose that they gave was to make it easier to... Move the, uh, the tabernacle as they moved. And God was okay with that. He told Moses, starting in verse 4, what to do with those carts. And Moses divided those carts among the tribes um, of the sons of Aaron. And he gave two to Gershon, verse 7. So unto the tribe of Gershon, he gave two carts. The reason was the tribe of Gershon was responsible for what? They were responsible for all the fabric. They were responsible for the the tent coverings. They were responsible for the veils. They were responsible for the cords. They were responsible for all the covering of the tabernacle. It was expedient for them to put those things upon carts and move them. He gave four wagons to the sons of Merari. The sons of Merari were responsible for moving the structure of the tabernacle. They were responsible for the poles. They were responsible for I don't know I'm going to call them spikes or staves. They were responsible for all the support of the tabernacle, and so it was expedient for them to move those things. But those things which were holy were not to be moved that way. We see that God is very specific to um, very specific to Moses in that He did not give unto the sons of Kohath in verse nine because the service of the sanctuary belonging to them was that they should bear it upon their shoulders. God couldn't have been more clear. It's to be moved by carrying it. It's to be moved by carrying it on staves that are through rings, so that you don't touch it because if you touch it, you're going to die. You're not to put it on a cart. I'm not giving you a cart to move it because I don't want you to move it that way. And yet, years later, Uzzah, David, Israel, when they had opportunity to move the ark, they disobeyed God's command. It was only with specific staves, threaded through the rings of the ark, that the sons of Kohath were commanded to carry the ark without touching it themselves. The manner in which the ark was moved was disobedient and disrespectful. So also think about how these things were moved. We, we all know this, um, I guess, because of things that we see in the, in the secular world, whether it's in movies or cartoons, um, recounts of what we know of civilization prior to us. Kings and royalty and those of prominence were moved by being carried. It was, it was, a, um, it was a method of respect and reverence, It was was smoother. It was safer. There was dignity in them being moved that way. Things, objects, stuff were moved in carts. And David and Israel and Uzzah for whatever reason they did it put the ark in carts. Ignoring what God had, had told to be done, ignoring who he said to do it put it on a cart like common stuff and carry it. So then our second question which is the reasonable next logical thing is why in the world did they disobey God? And I don't know the answer. We're not given the specific answer but there are some things that we need to see and we need to observe and we need to learn from what the scriptures do tell us. It is possible that they moved the ark in this manner because they were ignorant of God's law. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 23. And he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge and said, Be strong and of good courage. Thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear unto them, and I will be with thee. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of of this law in a book until they were finished, that listen to this, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Who did he give it to? He gave it to the sons of Kohath. Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and put it in the side of the inside of the ark. I know that my my Bible anyway has those spaced out, but they put it inside the ark of the covenant that it may be there for a witness against thee. It's going to be there to witness whether or not you do these things in alignment with my commandments or if you violate them. It'll be a witness for or against thee, for I know thy rebellion. And thy stiff neck. Behold, why I am yet alive with you this day, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And how much more after my death? Moses is worried. These people are going to forget the law. Now these are these are the commandments, right? This is not necessarily specific to the tabernacle, but the, the commandments of God that were delivered to the people, to Moses and then to the people. But Moses says, y'all are going to forget the commandments. You're going to rebel against them. I'm I'm, I'm giving these to you to keep because they're going to be a witness as to whether or not you're aligned with God. Verse 28, gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. And Moses spake in all the ears of the congregation of Israel, the words of this song until they were ended. Now go over to, uh, turn left, to Deuteronomy 6. Again, this is not specific to the commandments of the tabernacle, but this, this is specific to the commandments of God. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, listen to this, that you might do them in the land whether you go to possess it, that thou mightst fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life. And that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it might be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I commanded thee this day, they shall be in thine heart. And listen to this. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when you go, when you sittest in thine house, and when you walk by the way, and when you liest down, and when you riseth up. How often were they to meditate upon God's word? The entirety of your existence, when you go to bed, when you get up, when you're talking with other people, when you're doing your daily activities. God's word should guide your life and you should teach it to your sons and your sons' sons and your sons' sons the entirety of your life. You should teach my commandments. Is there any excuse for Uzzah and David and Israel to have forgotten God's word? Absolutely without excuse. God's people were told, hold these things sacred and teach them. That's a lesson for you and I that I don't know that I have in my notes, but I'll try to remember to conclude with it. We ought to hold those things dear and teach them unto others. So they were without excuse that they didn't know God's commandment. Ignorance was not sufficient for them. How long, then, had the ark been separated from the people how long had it been separate from Jerusalem and their focus and their attention? Suppose maybe, maybe just through a period of time that they just forgot. Go to First Samuel again. Go to the bookmark. I guess. First Samuel. We haven't been First Samuel yet. Let's start in chapter six. The very first verse. First of all, remember the ark of the Lord is lost at this point. Um, because of the people's, I'm going to call it arrogance, in that they thought they could just pull upon God any time they wanted, without, without proper respect and without asking. They could just pull him anytime they wanted to fight their battles and kind of force God to do so. Well, when they went against the Philistines and they didn't consult with God, and we know that um, there were those specifically men- mentioned, Phineas and others, who were disrespecting the role that they should have been serving and Israel was putting up with it then they went to battle with the Philistines and they're losing they said well go get the ark now that we're losing go get the ark they were going to force God to fight their battles now because they're losing and that didn't work and the Philistines took the ark and the ark according uh, in 1 Samuel verse 6 the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for 7 months and that ark plagued the Philistines they thought, man, we got this ark that's covered in gold. This thing's pretty valuable. The, the, um, the people of Israel, the people of God, they really rallied behind this thing. They, they were afraid of it. If you look in the previous verses up until this point, they were afraid of the ark. Because when the people did carry it forth with the proper respect, they were invincible. But while it was in the possession of the Philistines, it was a plague. They put it in their temple. They put it there with Dagoth. And it was like showing his glory. They put it at his his feet. It says they put it to the side of him. But my vision is they they put it right at his feet, right? So it's like an extension of Dagoth. It's it's showing Dagoth's uh, superiority over the ark. They came in the next day and Dagoth's on the ground. Well, he must have fell over. So they picked him up and put him back. And the next morning he fell over again. His hands and feet were cut off. He, he was showing, oh, uh, uh, he was showing his respect to God in that he was just a false god, worth nothing. It was just a statue. But then they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with it, and let me tread lightly in my description here. But it it plagued the people. It plagued the Philistines with emeralds, and if you understand what emeralds are, forgive me for being clear they were hemorrhoids. it plagued the the philistines and they were ready to get rid of this thing and so they started trying to figure out what we're going to do with the ark we need to get it out of here they put it on a cart you know what we need to probably read that stuff let let me stick with my train of thought go to chapter 7 verse uh, verses 1 and 2 let's look at that first And the men of -er Kirjath-Jerorim came and fetched up the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the Ark abode in -er Kirjath-Jerorim that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. All right. Uh, I wanted to get there because it does leave. I think it's significant to, to remember and think about how it left the Philistines. When they got rid of it and they said, we've got to do with something with this thing, return it to God's people, they put it on a cart. And then when they selected the cattle or the oxen to drive it, they just didn't go pull any particular cattle. But they took two um, cows that they had just separated from their calves, and said let's use these and if this is really God that that has presence with this ark if if this really means something to God we'll see if those cattle go to the Israelites or if they turn back to their calves and those cows went straight to Israel the Bible tells us they didn't look left they didn't look right but they took the ark back to uh, Kirjat Jeorim I may be mispronouncing that They took it back where it abode in the house of Abinadab. Actually, first, it ends up, I'm sorry, with the men of Beth Shemesh. I was missing something else I wanted to put out to you. It went first to the men of Beth Shemesh. That's where the cattle took it. And they made sacrifice to God and praised God that it had been returned. It was a very joyous occasion. Unfortunate occasion, I guess, for the cattle because they were sacrificed and offered to God. But they were happy that it was back. But Uzzah wasn't the only one who did not obey God, whether because of ignorance, whether because of pride. I have no idea, but I want you to look and see what they did at the end of chapter six. Verse 19, and he smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up? So it ended up there in Bethshemesh, and they, not heeding God's word, looked into or attempted to look into the ark of which God also had given instruction, and in excess of 50,000 men perished. Now the ark goes to Kirjath-Jarem, where it ends in the house or arrives or in the house of Abinadab. Now, how long was it in the house of Abinadab? There's a little bit of confusion out in the secular world of this, and I have no idea why it is so. It doesn't feel like this should be a hard lesson, but maybe I'm oversimplifying it. In verse 2, it says that it abode there for 20 years, and after it had been there 20 years, the people of Israel were lamenting after the Lord. Now, lamenting there um, means that they were mourning mourning in the sense of of death well they were mourning their separation from god because they were disobedient to him so it had been there for 20 years before samuel spake in verse 3 to the house of israel and said if you will return unto the lord with all your hearts and put away those strange gods and serve him only he will deliver you out of the hand of the philistines that doesn't mean that the ark was moved after 20 years It had been there 20 years when this event occurred. Some people draw a line there and say, well, that's when it was moved. And then that causes some controversy because if it was moved at 20 years and then Saul becomes king and Saul reigns for, how long does Saul reign? 40 years? Um, There's really not any confusion. Not in my mind, anyway. It had been there 20 years when this event happened. This is prior to, by the way, Saul being anointed as king. I believe it's in chapter 10. If you move, you don't have to move there. Um, over in chapter 10, I believe, is where the people then desire a king. This was not God's plan. Um, was not what Samuel wanted to do, but God allowed it. The people wanted a king, and so a king was set up, and Saul was set in place. Acts 13 and 21, for the sake of time, I won't go back there, but I'll paraphrase it. Acts tells us that Saul reigned for 40 years. So, how long was the ark in the house of Abinadab? Well, it arrived there prior to Saul being king. It abode there until David was anointed king and went to get it. So, it was in the house of Abinadab for at least 60 years. It was with the Philistines for seven months. It was in the house of Abinadab for 20 uh, 20 years before this event took place. And then in chapter 10, Saul was anointed king. And Saul, we know, reigned according to Acts 13 for 40 years. So in excess of 60 years, the ark was separated from Jerusalem and the people and the proper attention and reverence that they should have gave it. I also think it's important to think about whose house it was in. It was in the house of Abinadab, and it was in the house of Abinadab for at least 40 years. Um, If you want to assign 60 years, I'm aligned with that, but if if 40 years feels correct, then so be it. Who was Abinadab in relationship to Uzzah? And we see that answer in Samuel chapter 7, in verse 2. Uzzah was Abinadab's son. So for forty plus years, now I don't—I I say that I need to, I guess I need to be careful. For a period of time in Uzzah's growing up, his maturing, he was around the ark. I don't know how young he was when it went to the house of Abinadab. Maybe he wasn't even. Maybe he wasn't born yet. But for. The bulk of Uzzah's life, if not all of it, the ark was within the house of his father. So Uzzah would have become very comfortable with the ark. This is one of those things that, this is maybe my opinion, but I believe it's logical opinion, and I ask you to think through it. If that ark was in Abinadab's house for at least 40 years, and his son Uzzah grew up in that house, and he didn't die until later on when they were moving it on the cart, isn't it reasonable that Abinadab would have taught him? Son, don't touch that. Isn't it reasonable he would have taught him the the reverence and the respect for the ark? Uzzah didn't die until they put it on the cart and he touched it. It's, It's logical to think, Abinadab must have taught Uzzah proper reverence for the ark. Otherwise, he never would have matured to adulthood. We already know that because God said that those that touched it would perish. So if he lived, he must have known not to touch it, or maybe it was just coincidence and luck. But that's hard to accept. Nonetheless, maybe that's there for some additional learning and thought for you and I. So maybe it's possible that over this long period of time, 60 plus years, that David and Uzzah and Israel just forgot how to move the ark. But ignorance was no excuse. Even with a long passage of time, all of Israel should have known God's commandment. They should have taught it, they should have passed it down, and they should have had no excuse for disobeying God. All right. Next possible reason that maybe they moved it this way. Maybe it was just because it was popular opinion. Maybe it was peer pressure. Who did David consult? Go back to Chronicles chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Who was it that David consulted when he prepared to move the ark? And David consulted with the captain of thousands every leader, all the congregation of Israel, and they were all aligned. Let's move the ark. What it doesn't tell us is what kind of conversation they had about how to move it. I asked you to apply logic to the house of Abinadab. Apply logic here. Tens of thousands of individuals Let me rephrase that. Since the, uh, since chapter 1 says thousands, let me leave it at that. Thousands of individuals, the whole host of the congregation of Israel, was asked by David, let's go move the ark. If it seems good to you and it's agreeable to God, let's move the ark and bring it here. Let's give it proper place. And all of them agreed. Is it logical to suppose that at least somebody in that crowd Remember the commandments of God? It is possible that thousands upon thousands of people had just forgotten God's word and let it die. But Uzzah didn't perish for the entire time that this abode in, in Abinadab's house. It's logical to think that Abinadab must have, have taught him something. Think about this. How did it get out of Abinadab's house? We aren't told of anybody dying when they brought it out of the house, so did they tear down uh, a wall and back the cart up? We're not told that. That's not logical to assume because there's nothing to tell us that. Somehow it must have been carried out of the house. Isn't it logical to suppose that as they looked at the ark, somebody would have thought, what are those rings for? Even if they had forgotten God's commandments, Isn't it logical to think somebody would have said, what are those staves for? And if nobody died carrying it out of Abinadab's house, they must have carried it properly. So it's logical to think, or to at least suppose, that among these thousands of people, somebody knew how this thing was supposed to be moved. Sons of Kohath should have defended that adamantly. Our fathers and grandfathers, my uncles, my my mother, my father, they taught us how this was to be moved. We can't put it on a cart. It's logical that Abinadab should have said, Wait a second. We carried it out of the house, and that was right. But we, this is the ark of the covenant. This is the ark of God. We got to show proper reverence. We can't put it on the cart. But we don't see that anywhere. So was it just popularity that thousands of thousands of people said the cart's a good idea? Let's put it on the cart. With such a broad audience, there surely should have been a voice that spoke to reason, or spoke to God's commandment. We're not made known of any that did, but maybe they did, and they were just overridden. Third point that I have for you, and I just included everything else, so whatever else you might have, write them in here. Maybe you have something I didn't make observation of. Maybe they moved it on a cart because of speed. Maybe it was because of convenience. Maybe this felt like a better method. This is a new way of doing things. Maybe it was how they observed the Philistines moving it. The Philistines didn't die when they put it on a cart. Well, the Philistines weren't under that law. The Philistines weren't tasked with moving the ark. They weren't told how it... They had no reverence for it because it didn't mean anything to them. It was just gold. But to the people of Israel... It meant a lot, or it should have. But for whatever reason, we see no indication in 2 Samuel 6 or 1 Chronicles 13, those parallel verses, that God was displeased with moving him. We didn't see any kind of objection to the fact that it was being brought to the city of David. We don't see any indication in those two passages that. Uzzah or David or Israel was acting maliciously toward it. We see quite the opposite. They were playing with instruments. They were joyfully, I would say, celebrating. They were happy that they were bringing the ark back home. There was nothing that showed they were doing it with the wrong intent, maliciously. But what we know, assuredly, is that they decided collectively to put it on this cart. I have no idea if that was because of convenience. It it definitely feels like it would have been more convenient. Quicker? Sure. How fast can you carry something versus maybe putting it on a cart and driving it? Simpler? I would suppose so. It takes one person maybe to drive the cart versus six or eight to carry it. Less equipment? Yep. Maybe it's just a better way. Times have a changed, right? Philistines put it on a cart. Let's put it on a cart. That wasn't God's way of doing things. It didn't show the proper reverence. It didn't stick with God's name. What about your good intentions? I think I already answered these, but... We'll go through them red equator. What about their good intentions? Did the Israelites have good intentions in moving the ark? Yes. Do we see any, any indication that they were attempting to move it maliciously, cause harm to it? No. Do we see that through their pride or arrogance, they just were choosing to be willfully disobedient? No, nope, we don't necessarily. They were in a celebratory mood that they were bringing it home, but they disobeyed God. So it's pretty easy. Why did it have to die? Because he touched the ark. Why did it have to die? Because he was disobedient to God. Why did it have to die? Because he lacked faith. Again, I, I can't put us in the mind of Uzzah. I try sometimes and I shouldn't. But I think, well, Uzzah just saw that ox stumble. By the way, he didn't see the ark shuffle and move. I've always in my mind had it that way. That's not what Uzzah saw. It's not what the Bible tells us. The ox stumbled. So looking and seeing that ox stumble up there, he reached forth to touch the ark. In my mind, I always want to think, Uzzah just did it out of instinct. the last time you were cooking something on the stove, frying something, deep frying something in a pan, and you just reached down with your fingers and picked up that bacon and flipped it over? Why do you not do that? Because you know from years of experience in teaching, mom, dad, home ec, teacher, whoever says, don't touch that, it's hot. You know from experience that as that grease splatters and touches your skin, it's hot. It's hot. I'm not going to put my fingers down there and turn that bacon over. Why was Uzzah conditioned to put his hand up to the ark? Must have been because he wasn't properly trained. Now, was that his fault? Was it Abinadab's fault? Was it David's fault? Was it Israel's fault? Yes. It was negligence. He should have conditioned himself. This is me feeling a little bit critical, but... I'm telling you for years, I have been on the side of thinking, this is really harsh. This is a hard teaching. Because Uzzah just out of instinct touched the ark. That shouldn't have been his instinct. When he saw that ox stumble, if he was afraid the ark was going to fall, he should have said, quick, somebody grab the staves. Because he should have known the commandments of God. And he should have respected them. He should have had faith that God could have steadied that cart. That ox may have fell. He might have rolled all the way over. He might have slid downhill but that cart could have been fine because God could have chose it to be so. That's not the account. Uzzah had to die because he put himself above God. Whether he did it by accident, whether he did it by ignorance, Uzzah decided he needed to stabilize the ark by touching it. And he should have known better. Uzzah had to die because in order for God to be righteous, that which he spoke had to be fulfilled. And if God said if anybody touches the ark, they will die Righteousness, justice demands that if that is what happens, then that is what happens. Touch the ark, die. If they touched the ark and they didn't die, why in the world would you believe God about anything else? Righteousness demanded that when Uzzah was disobedient, the result of that disobedience had to be carried out. So then I said, maybe our fourth question, you might have more, but our fourth question then was, well, why does that matter to me? Because the lessons for Uzzah, the lesson for David, the lesson for Israel are the lessons that we, 3,000 years later, need to hear, and they need to change the course of our action or at least steady it, right? We've made mistakes in our lives. And through those mistakes, we have learned something. And we've either kept doing something that was good, or we changed the way we we're doing something because of that effect. That's the account of Uzzah. Now, David was mad. David was upset that God killed Uzzah. But it didn't take him long to back up and recognize. I and we, he told Israel, violated God's command. It didn't take him long to recognize God wasn't... God wasn't overly wrathful. He wasn't beyond that which should have happened. You know what what might should have happened in the name of justice? The entirety of Israel defied God's commandment. Why did he doesn't have to die? Because he was disobedient. It would have been perfectly within God's righteousness for the nation of Israel to have died. Because not a one stood up that we know of and stopped this from happening. Well, we know assuredly nobody stopped it from happening, but what we don't know is if anybody said, hey, this is wrong. But the nation of Israel had to be preserved because it was through the nation of Israel and through the passage of time and lineage the Messiah was to come. They were God's chosen people. But it wouldn't have been out of line for God to fulfill his righteousness when they disobeyed him as a nation. I'm not mad that you moved the ark. I'm mad that you put it on a cart and you disrespected it. And you chose not to listen to me. I call them a stiff-necked people for a reason. But you know what? Sometimes we can be stiff-necked, thick-headed. I have four things down below here. Uzzah, David, and Israel disobeyed. These are the lessons for us. Why is this important? Why in the world do I study this potentially hard lesson? Uzzah died. I feel bad about that. That hurts me and pains me. That cursory glance, like Jimmy said this morning, if we just lightly look at Scripture, we think, man, God was really judgmental against Uzzah. He was compassionate to the people of Israel because they all deserved it, die, But Uzzah violated God's command, and he should have known better, and he chose to do so otherwise for whatever reason, whether it was misplaced instinct, um, it was negligence, it was disobedience. So the four things for us, us, the David, and Israel disobeyed God's command. I think we hit that well enough, but you can look at Leviticus 5, Proverbs 24, and Acts 17, which tell us that ignorance is no excuse, right? The time of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men to repent. It was time for us to know what is the commandments of God and honor and keep those. Obedience shows our love to God popular phrase over the last, I don't know how long ago it it evolved, but we talk about our love language, right? What What is our love language? What is that which builds me up and inspires me? Or what is that which pleases me? God's love language is obedience. And I'm sorry for bringing him down to our level, but this is for maybe for our learning is the reason I put it out there. God's love language is obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. You have references there to that. 2 John 1, 6 and John 14, 15. Second point uh, for us today. Why is it important? a David, and Israel lacked faith in God. God will do what he says he will do. You can look back at Numbers 23, 19, Isaiah 38, 7 that I have there. Or you can think back on what we looked at earlier in 2 Peter 3, 9 uh, through 16. We read 15 and 16. If you move up in that verse, God is not slack concerning his promises. But he is long-suffering. They had a lack of faith in God. There's goodness and severity in God. We see that in Romans 11 and 22. And we should understand, respect, and appreciate the awesomeness of God. And God will do what he says he will do. Uzzah shouldn't have touched that ark. He had no reason to. David shouldn't have put it on a cart, he shouldn't have let his people move it that way. Israel shouldn't have let that happen. Uzzah died because he didn't have faith that God could study the ark. Third, Uzzah, David, and Israel put themselves above God. I think we've we've been all through that one as well. They put themselves above God in their decision. God had a commandment for how to move it and who should move it. They just decided to do otherwise. I have no idea why. There are some reasons there that we looked at, and we needed to look at them for our learning. And finally, why is this important to us? God's righteousness demands accountability and justice. That is a hard lesson. But then, make it so easy for you. God's righteousness demands accountability and justice. If he wasn't faithful, and speaking what he said, why would you choose to How would we know what is pleasing to him? Well, we know because the Bible tells us so, and we know because he keeps his word. And so his righteousness demands that there is accountability, whether we keep his commandments or whether we do not. And that's why all through the book of Revelation, the story and the theme is a victory. To those who overcome, over and over and over again, those that this was written to for a specific purposes, given for our learning, it was given. The victory is already won, but it's to those who overcome. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the short lesson of Uzzah and Israel and David. Love God and keep His commandments. Don't alter them. Don't change them don't suppose you have a better way and surely God appreciates what I'm doing because blank. Let me close with a quick story. I was studying with some of my, um, some of my colleagues throughout my years, having a conversation about the Bible and about God. and There was a gentleman there that was of uh, the, the Pentecostal belief and we were talking about the ceasing of miracles and why the miracles were giving and what it meant to speak in tongues and that when one speaks the tongue, there's supposed to be an interpreter there that could interpret that which they spoke. And he said, I understand what you're getting at. I see why you say that miracles have ceased. I, I see that from the scriptures, why you believe that. But I feel But I feel when we speak that way in church, oh, it just lifts up the people. And then there was another one of my friends and coworkers that was a Baptist there. And so we just migrated toward instrumental music. I don't know, we were just going through a bunch of stuff. I can see. Now, they said it in different words, but he said, I see where you guys get that from now. He tried to go back to some of the passages we read and some others. Well, David played the harp. David played instruments before God. That was Old Testament. Well, we see in Revelation some instruments that are used. That's a symbol of heaven and the glory of heaven and what's happening there. Find within the New Testament in the early church where they used instrumental music. Well, I understand and I see where you're coming from. But I feel so much more inspired When that music is playing and we're singing along with the piano or the organ or the drums or the guitars. You all understand the error of that thinking. I see, but. Think about Israel. Maybe somebody did stand up and say, we can't put this thing on a cart. It's too important. And the crowd said, we understand what you're saying. But we feel That this is more expedient, this is easier, this is safer, this is whatever you want to substitute. Or put it into the, what are be in, 20, 20 22nd, 21st, 23rd century? Wherever we're at, put it into 2023 language. Times have changed. Surely God wants, I feel, it's not what God has asked. If you love me, keep my commandments. He knows better than I do. That's my admonition, my thoughts for us today. Thank you for hanging in there. I got it at 45 minutes. I told Chris I'm going to take an hour and a half, so I feel like I did pretty good. In closing, um, I, first of all, to the best of my knowledge, looking across the crowd, everybody here is a member of God's family. Um, we still offer the Lord's invitation for two reasons. Number one, if you are uncertain, as to whether or not you are part of the family, if you have done that which God prescribed. We just studied about keeping his commandments. There's no other way to salvation than God's way. I can feel however I want to feel about it, whether that is about belief or baptism. But if I change and alter it, I am outside of that which God commanded. God told us to to hear, and that could involve physically hearing, which I, I ascribed as one of the best ways but it could be in careful study because that is definitely important in scriptural as well. But we have to hear the word and it's from hearing the word being taught that we come to believe it. And once we believe it, we recognize that I'm outside of that which God has willed for me. And so I have to turn away from those things that have separated me from God. Maybe it's just been rebellion to accepting his plan of salvation up until now. So having heard, I believe, I have faith. I've repented of those things. I have to confess that I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for the remission of my sins. He went to the cross for me and for you. Having believed that, I have to be baptized for the remission of sins. It's not an outward appearance to show others what I already believe. It's not a sprinkling. It's not a pouring. If that is the case, then the, the account of the Ethiopian eunuch makes no sense. That was another discussion I had with another coworker. Why in the world stop? Why in the world go down in the River Jordan? Well, I feel God said, "Repent and be." I'm sorry, Peter, delivering God's word, said, "Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins." And then we're fond of saying because it's scriptural, it fits with our study today. It fits with Revelation. Um, 22 and verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death. That was spoken for a different audience potentially and very specific, but it's still valuable to you and I. It fits with what we studied today. It fits with passages. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Live faithfully unto death. And guess what? You're going to slip, trip, and bump. And when you do, you have a special advocate. Christ is waiting there to intercede on your behalf. And God is ready to forgive you because God wants that no man should perish, but that all should come to him in repentance. If anybody here this morning has a need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we want to help in whatever way we can. Maybe you need to study. Maybe you need to make sure.